0: Every now and then, I meet someone who is changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. Hey, so in this episode of the podcast, I speak with Douglas Chadwick the author of Four Fists of Grizzly and a renowned biologist. We talk about a lot of different things, um, mainly about like the elasticity of nature and about how a lot of times it can seem very fragile. And truthfully, it is. But if we give it a little bit of time and a little bit of, um, you know, half a chance, it can bounce back. It's very resilient. And we talk about... Um, Really compelling success stories that he chronicles in his book for Fisker Grizzly, that to me were incredibly inspiring. In the midst of what can seem like a pretty crazy year or series of years, um, as it pertains to the environment. We also talk about, um, you know, how he is an evangelist for nature as a whole, and how he is uh, optimist but he doesn't really have a choice in the matter. like he forces himself to be optimistic about um, conservation and you know conservation initiatives, which I can totally relate to. Uh, and then finally we talk a lot about like you know how traditional conservation methods might have to change like how when um, a lot of times organizations would put, or pit uh, economy and ecology against each other, um, and how now their nonprofits profits or uh, even companies and corporations are having to learn to work together to face some of the challenges we exist, whether it's fractured habitat, whether it's loss of biodiversity, or whether it's climate change or anything related to those. So anyways, I really enjoyed this talk with Mr. Chadwick. It was great to hear his perspective on certain things, being a you know, insider in conservation for so long, and it was also really nice to be able to put a name and a face and a voice to the book uh, for Fissa Grizzly because it was such a compelling and positive read. Um, that it was nice actually, kind of talk to him and, and and get his unique perspective on certain things. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you do, you can pick up Douglas Chadwick's book for Fissa Grizzly. Much anywhere books are sold. All right. Enjoy. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Doug. I really appreciate your time. Well, wow,
1: I'm glad to do it. <laughs> it's great.
0: Yeah. Uh, and I appreciate your time and I really appreciate reading your book for Fissa Grizzly. Um, <laughs> we kind of talked a little bit about it before the call and we'll talk, you know, in the, the next few, you know, in the next hour about um, how compelling it is. But what I really love. I love the title four fifths of grizzly. Um, you go on to explain what it means and, and, um, kind of build upon that, but let's just get out from the beginning. Like the book is about much more than grizzlies. Um, but I was very curious about your experience with grizzlies and what got you to this point of, um, you know, writing this book that pertains, you know, kind of starts off with grizzlies, but talks about so many more, um, species. Right.
1: Right. Um, Well, I'm a wildlife biologist and I studied mountain goats for a number of years in the top of the, the continental divide and, and well, the high country here in the Rockies and in Montana. And I ran into grizzlies a lot and I got fascinated by them and, you know, they, they wake you all the way, they wake you all the way up. I mean, you, um, and in other words, you—you know—we evolved in wild country among wild creatures, and and all my my nerves, my senses, my hormones, everything is keyed up to a yeah. different pitch in grizzly country. And it's because I'm vulnerable. Yeah. Um. But all by being that much more alert and having to pay attention, and a little enforced humility, I'd call it. Um, I'm paying attention to the tracks on the path. I'm paying attention to the wind direction and the smells, the, what the creek is saying as it flows, you know, how mm. how steep or how gentle is that country, what the wind is telling me. And, and, and then when I see the bear itself, I realize I'm looking at a fellow long-lived, powerful, intelligent mammal. And I went from there to actually seeking them out at Salmon Streams, where you can be right among bears. And they're focused on their food. They're all fat and happy Mm -hmm. and very tolerant. And they'll even fish side by side with wolves, which other times are mortal enemies. And people are, you know, you're, you're like wallpaper. And so you get to get past the fear and start seeing that every grizzly is as different from every other grizzly as humans are from one another. And you start to see the subtleties of their behavior, because we've got this slam bang, rip snort vision of a grizzly bear, mm-hmm. which it certainly can be. But um, anyway, it's endlessly fascinating. The more I watched them, the more I got intrigued. But as you say, the book is not about grizzlies. It has a chapter about the qualities we share and that includes curiosity. The, they're very uh, manipulative with those paws. They, they just can't stay away from finding out what stuff is. And, <laughs> and, um, uh, but I am share 80% plus of my genes with every mammal out there. And, you know, let's face it. If I called a book four-fifths, I'm four-fifths a duck-billed platypus. Not good marketing, <laughs> right? but uh, I'm joking. But, you know, if you say grizzly, you have people's attention. But it's also, we in Montana spend a lot of time talking about bears and arguing over bears and where they're going to be allowed to live and how to live with them. And uh, most people aren't aware that they are, their genes, identical, probably more like 80, mid-80s percentile, with the likes of a grizzly bear, so they share not just the external characteristics of uh, of their lives, but, but their makeup and our makeup. We're we way we have so much more in common than we have separate. So that's a way to get introduce that subject. And you know, I could go on and say, well, look, I'm 98 percent identical to a chimpanzee, 60 percent with some fish. Uh forty percent with some insects, which people would never think of.
0: Right, yeah. carrying that much uh, DNA.
1: Twenty to thirty percent with plants. Uh you are twenty four percent a wine grape. Well yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that may dreams and come. I now saw maybe that. yeah, I love that part. Yeah, well, maybe some nights you're like me, you have a you're a little more than twenty four percent a wine yeah. grape. Yeah, a little bit. And um <laughs> so anyway, it we're kin in a literal way and I think when people say well we're one with all life they think it's sort of a rhetorical device it's uh it's some woo-woo nature stuff but no we're we're built of the same things so that's what four fists the grizzly is starting off uh with that commonality
0: yeah and I love the way that you start off with that that mantra immediately but have it as a touch point throughout like we are not being one with nature is not an aspiration we already are um we already and i think are. that's yeah. that's kind of the underlying uh premise of a lot of the book but potentially of a lot of um issues facing nat- nature and conservation and yeah. uh a lot of the issues we find that we're facing today yeah i i
1: look i wrote the book because i had been um the folks can't see me on the screen, but you can. You can see a few white hairs there. And <laughs> <You got>
0: it. <laughs>
1: it occurred to me that at the rate we are losing species, which yeah. is catastrophic, and habitats are changing and being fragmented or just removed. We're, we're, we're losing huge wax in nature. And it occurred to me that I don't have time to keep writing books about individual species or special mm-hmm. places that need protection, <clears throat> I had to take on the big questions. And how do I do that in a way that isn't scolding people or intimidating science or, you know, uh, a long eco-sermon? Because the information is out there that ought to change that view that is embodied in our philosophies, in our politics, in our language, in our daily in our daily lives that we're taught from birth that we are separate from and a whole different kind of creature from all the rest of those plants and animals out there. And we're separate and special. We're different. We're liberated from nature to a large degree. And all the scientific evidence of the last several decades has been embedding us farther and farther into nature and showing how much more we have in common. But that hasn't, I mean, I don't come up with anything new in a book like this. I am encapsulating a lot of information. I, I got with my boots on, by the way, I'm (laughs) I'm a field biologist, uh, worked all over the world, but I also did go down a lot of rabbit holes following journals and scientific publications and the information is is there but it hasn't made its way out to the public very much and so my job is a I'm a biologist but I'm an arm waver and a communicator I want to focus people's attention and so my challenge was to how do I how do I bring this this discussion out to Everyone deserves to know this. We're all we're all naturals. We're all living creatures and thinking we're not going to save nature as long as we continue to think about it the way we do. So how can I change that format? And that's taking on a lot. I'm not an egomaniac. I just didn't know what else to do. (laughs)
0: and uh, well i love the way you talk about it like you mentioned uh the the phrase that you mentioned was separate and superior but a lot of people find that they're separate and superior to nature but they're not like just what you're saying they are part of nature and it almost makes us more special and it almost makes us all as living things superior or you know just it makes us all better um I mean, like one, you, you spend an entire chapter talking about the benefits of nature to someone's health that, um, uh, you know, people are very health conscious now. It feels yeah. like even more so than they have been. But I'm wondering if you can talk about that. Cause that, you know, I, I find that I spend a, a significant amount of my time in nature as much as I can, but a lot of these specifics I didn't know. And I was very, I felt even calm just reading about them. It was, it was really incredible.
1: Well, yeah. The, the odd thing is is how not only do people have trouble sort of picturing themselves as part of nature and there's a lot of resistance to it and let me just back up to say again this is not a criticism of you know, oh, people are blind, people are egocentric, people are, uh, you know, self-absorbed. It's, hey, this worked for us. We've been around 300,000 plus years as homo sapiens, and we've obviously done really well. But here's what changed it. Of those 300,000 years, um, (laughs) 288,000, I'm listening to a, flicker destroy my house without picking at the side of my <laughs> my <laughs> sorry You're <good>. all right. <laughs> if I'm okay anyway I hate I hate nature uh, um, <laughs> anyway for almost all that time whatever our mindset was whatever we told ourselves culturally about how wonderful humans are and how different and special um it was working but we didn't hit our first million in population on the globe until 12,000 years ago. Okay, 1 million. That was our first million Um, after 288,000 years. And then uh, we hit our first billion around 1800, just a couple centuries ago, and now we're at 8 billion. Yeah. And so what worked for... I'm sorry, <laughs> woodpecker is <laughs> driving me. Nick, can you hear it?
0: <laughs> I I I actually can. Yeah, it's it's okay. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it's okay. It's,
1: well, we got we got all. I live out out of town, waves, and we've got all kinds of wildlife around and <laughs> on the house. Um, anyway, what worked for us for all those years? Then we had this explosion of population that's unprecedented outside of viruses and bacteria almost. It's just a wow. boom to 8 billion of us. We don't have any guidelines on how to live on the planet at that number. We've never done anything like this before. We're terraforming. We're changing the air and the qualities of the water, et cetera, et cetera. We're really making substantial changes, but we're still thinking about things the old way. So, um if that doesn't change, I think we're looking at a very, very uncomfortable future. Hmm. And so instead of trying to argue people into conservation again by, uh, blaming them for things or, you know, finding fault with what we're doing, it's just look, you said it yourself at the beginning. It, our connections with nature are multiple, and I'll try to point them out sometime during the interview. Specifically, it's more than our genetic ties, but it makes us more than human, and that it makes us greater than we think we are, and that's saying something because we, we're pretty, we're pretty convinced we're really great, and we are. We're magnificently creative and and inventive species, but we just don't recognize, you know what are the limits to the ability of the planet to sustain us? So uh, we need to think about ourselves and nature differently. I know I keep harping on that, but that's the point. Not to get involved in controversies over individual areas and individual species, but we need to sort of overthrow, overturn the our view of nature that w- we like very much, but we're going to have to get we're going to have to get over it, and yeah. and what we'll do is, I hope, come out the other side with a greater, grander, more inclusive, and connected vision of ourselves as part of this this thing we call life in in more ways than we ever expected.
0: Yeah, uh, and I'm hoping. I want to touch on this in great detail later, um, but I'm hoping there is kind of an awakening to this i hope there are people like you were mentioning that a lot of times health insurance companies will pay people or will you know subsidize people to go forest bathing or yeah. um how like being in nature actively or just being for lack of a better term like dirty like not yeah <laughs> not always with the hand sanitizer i mean we'll right. take COVID out of it sure but like yeah. how it um how it affects your your immune system, and it's stuff that you, you you might know, like people might know, they might be aware, but like to the extent in which it does, or to the um, uh, you know exactly how much it does assist you, yeah. how much you can benefit from it, people might not know.
1: Well, here's the fascinating, and you 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 mentioned we're paying more attention to our microbiome, for example, and we're paying more attention, especially younger generations, to the value of exercise but what fascinates me is that if you go out and have contact with nature get your boots on don't forget them and just spend time out there your heart rate slows yeah your blood pressure drops your immune system gets fired up it gets strengthened reinforced and your cognitive abilities your your you're in a rest and relaxation mode and it clarifies your thinking process. They've done studies with older people, with younger people, it just works automatically. And all these things happen to us in our physiology, our metabolism, um our general health. Now, exercise will get you many of the same benefits, but what could be better than double going double down mm-hmm. on this where because if you simply go out and sit on a bench in a little urban park in a green space and just stay there, you will get all those same health benefits. Mm. And we don't know why exactly. It has to do with the fact that we evolved in those environments, I'm sure, but it may be have to do with our microbiome. It may have to do with, with unconscious parts of our, our, uh, you know, our, our mind that we're not aware of, but it's like I keep saying, it's automatic. You can get some of the same responses by people sitting in a room and looking at pictures of nature, stopping by gardening. Um, you can go out and play with the window box on your balcony and get some of those same effects. I think that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I think it, I think it, it cuts through that. That idea that um, contact with nature is for just for the outdoorsy pe- set, or just for yeah, you know, do-gooders, and and uh, you know, a certain type of person. It's like no, everybody yep. responds to this. And why isn't this part of the conservation message? Yeah, um, it, it, nature does you good. Period. The more is better.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the more is. There's a lot of people that will be, and I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, but there's a lot of people who are going to be influenced mainly by the health benefits or mainly by, you know, what can nature do for me? Whether it's eating better, whether it's eating less meat, like how, how can I benefit from that? And hey, if that happens to also have a byproduct where it benefits nature, that's great. So that's why I think that's an important group of people that nature might not be their first priority, their first concern, but um we need to find other, other avenues that will influence them that will become you know have them to become the evangelists of nature as a whole
1: well it, it again if as nature goes so go we i mean if to the extent that we diminish it we diminishing ourselves our options our potential health and the other part of this contact with nature that changes so much uh, our response about it. Um, longevity mm, people yeah. who spend more time <clears throat> in nature live longer. So what more can I promise you what I'm saying? Go out, save a yeah. few more wild places, put more. Uh, if all you do is get a couple more green spaces in your neighborhood, just mm. little lots, little places to walk more trees. Um, you're doing yourself a world of good and ne- and all your neighbors as well. What yeah. what's to argue over? How are we how did environmentalists get put over in the corner as anti-progress, anti-business all? And and look my the other thing I should bring out since we're on that subject is I live in prox well, I live close to Glacier National Park and oh, wow. some great wilderness areas. Uh, I mean, I can be hiking in Glacier in 25 minutes and I'm, I'm in town. I'm on the edge of town. Um, we spent years having these political battles over jobs versus the environment and ecology versus the economy. Well, guess what the driving force is in the local economy and in the state of Montana as a whole? Mm. Tourism and recreation. Because we got a lot of great country and a lot of great wildlife and people come seeking it. Mm-hmm. And boy, we really noticed it during the COVID era. But the the point is everybody in town is is wow, we're in fact for us uh those of us who have been here a while, it's 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 a bit frightening. We're, yeah. Everybody's making money, everyone's coming here, everyone's building new houses, it's uh it's great for the economy mm-hmm. um, I think we better have a few discussions about <laughs> yeah when, when you start loving stuff to death but anyway that, that old argument over jobs versus the economy is is that's like dial up phones and, and uh, or rotary telephones and, and manual typewriters that's gone
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, here it's just, the rhetoric hasn't changed the political debates haven't changed and I I just think people change slowly and and have trouble kind of holding more than one idea in their head at a time.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask you just about that, about like the economy versus ecology question and how you confront that. Um, yeah, because I live by the coast in North Carolina and I see that a lot, especially with new development, especially with development yeah. Uh, yeah. on the marshes or on the Intracoastal that are essential to... Um, you know, any kind of oceanic or marine life, pretty much the, the birthing place of most creatures. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, it it feels like a lot of places have been able to kind of get to the bottom of that question. Like we went to, my wife and I, right before COVID, um, in I guess November of 2019, we went to go see the mountain gorillas of Uganda. And they were incredible in the fact that, you know, they really had to limit how many people it could come. Well, it was very expensive to go see them. Um, but it seems like one of the places that might have gotten it or that is getting it right. And you talked about charismatic me- megafauna in the book. And that's why you named the book, you know, Four Fists of Grizzly because, you know, yeah. it, it's got a good ring to it, but it does. But you mentioned something that saving those charismatic megafauna, you know, uh, while some... Biologists are concerned that there's too much focus on them. You brought up a really good point of like, well, by saving them, you're saving these ecosystems for a lot of other, a yeah. lot of uh, less charismatic, <laughs> I guess we'll put it, yeah. you know, uh, fauna. So I, I thought that was interesting. I was curious if you you brought up a couple instances in the book, but if there's anything, any other instances where you've seen that play out, where you've seen people be able to utilize, uh, leverage these charismatic megafauna for Environmental and economic benefit
1: sure um, well, I've worked um, in parts of Africa and Asia where um, there, it's a big challenge it's exploding po- human populations, but um, in you know the end result is less and less land for more and more people. And keep subdividing it uh, among generations, and and then everyone's poor altogether, scrabbling for a living. Um, I, but, you know, people talk a lot about ecotourism, and there's certainly some poor examples of it, some downright phony ones, but mm-hmm. a lot of very good ones. Yeah. The yeah. problem is always making sure the wealth gets distributed within the local community. And where that is done, um, yeah, wildlife and people can, we always say, where's the compromise? How much wildlife can people live with? Well, they can live with however many they're willing to try living with if there are benefits to that community. And, the, you know, I hate to keep throwing out statistics because it, it sounds like, you know you're just trying to bolster an argument but but i can't get over the fact that when we talk about compromise of what humans need what animals need um, right now of all the wild mammals on the planet well, let's just say of all the mammals on the planet period uh, their total living weight 96% of it is consists of humans and their livestock
0: mm-hmm. yeah And all the
1: the wild mammals that are left are 4%. Um, The other one I'll throw out is just that uh, about half a century ago, in the 1970s, um, of of every 10 large land-dwelling big wild mammals, um, wherever they were, there are now three left. So it isn't just extinction of species, it's just total number of Mm -hmm. big wild critters that the, the land can support. And the irony is what you started talking about, that it's the big dramatic animals that we relate to, the fellow mammals especially. I mean... An elephant would be a great example. I mean, they don't get any bigger on land. <clears throat> they live as long as we do. They have wonderful family relationships, very altruistic, take great care of each other, uh, learning their whole lives. They use tools, they mourn their dead. They're easy mm-hmm. for us to relate to, plus awe inspiring mm-hmm. at the same time. But they require, they tell us how much of these of an area we need to protect in one way or another for them to persist. You can't stick elephants in a little isolated reserve um, and expect uh, that they'll stay there or that you can come back in 50 years and find them. It just doesn't work. They need big sweeps of country. Now, within that country, elephants are perfectly smart enough to figure out how to move among people as long as it's safe for them um oh when you talk about conservation of the big charismatic critters that carry whole ecosystems on their back elephants <laughs> knock down the trees and woody plants the shrubs and create that big savanna where you go in in the serengeti or Masai mara and right. see the just endless horizons of grazing zebras and wildebeest and Thompson gazelles. Um, elephants are keeping the brush down and there's this balance between woodland and savanna that elephants sort of moderate. They're architects of the rainforest too. They're distributing seeds and trees, th- types of trees throughout the rainforest. And you lose them, things things change greatly. But They also, if you're saving the elephants, I think what you were saying, then it's kind of like if you're saving the killer whales or you're saving the grizzly, all the other creatures that belong there in that ecosystem, chances are there's room for them as well. You're taking care of them. So that's what the focus on charismatic, you know, megafauna, as they call it, is about. But, The point of of a book like Four Fifths of Grizzly is to say, all right, what does that elephant depend on? Well, 400 400 pounds of vegetation a day, as much as that. And and what does that vegetation depend on? Well, it depends on associations with other vegetation, with microbes, with nitrogen-fixing bacteria and their roots, with insects that they have symbiotic relationships with that actually defend the vegetation from other insects or from fungus or that sort of thing. Um, It depends on the the fact that 90% of all the plants in the world have intimate associations with invisible fungi between their roots and the soil. That draw extra nutrients and water. That was yeah. That was wild to read about. They have more micro, more bacteria, uh, protozoans, and fungus inside their tissues, um, and then their ability to turn sunlight into food, photosynthesis. All green plants depends on chloroplasts inside each cell, and the chloroplast is a modified cyanobacteria from ancient times so what is a tree you know it's, right, it's right. about five five different species it's mm-hmm. like a lichen plus and and that's what the, feeding the elephants is that combination these these partnerships that all plants and animals have that produce and recycle the food and energy in that ecosystem, and we just don't see it. Look, the majority of life on the planet, the overwhelming 99.9%, is invisible, but it runs the place, and we're not going to be able to see that. But people should know about it and think about it and understand it because that's what's keeping places whole, and there's we like to think of ourselves as kind of independent uh you know we we're so smart and we have so much technology we can kind of take it or leave it as far as having an association with nature, but other animals can't mm-hmm. and they need a complete ecosystem so um you know saving nature saves the animals you like, but yeah all the others need to come along with it and I just and ultimately that's what will keep us fed keep us healthy keep us from getting too hot yeah <laughs> and all the other things that are going on so um i i you know i you probably saw in the book i have a i call it the 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 new or adapted golden rule which is do unto ecosystems as you would have them do unto you mm-hmm. They're the reason we're here. They nurtured us, they sustained our health, they allow us to flourish. If we can do the same with the ecosystems we depend upon, I mean what that's that's the way into the future. That's our way out of the current dilemma.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And one thing I do one thing I really do love that in addition to talking about how connected species are with each other, but how important it is to have connected land kind of like yeah. what you're talking about um and yeah. about how like sure there might be we could say wild places there might be wild places but are there wild places that are are they fractured are they um like how right. are they connected and you yeah. chronicle like, like one of the things i really love about what you do in the book is you make sure to have everything to the extent that it makes sense with a really positive message about what people are doing to save the yeah. environment, not what they can be doing, but what people are actually are doing. So people have that feeling of hope. Um, and one of the things you talk about was a Yellowstone to Yukon. Uh, yeah. That connectivity uh, project. Can you talk a little bit about that and about how um, the thought behind that and, and, and uh, kind of the forces that are moving as it's yeah, happening?
1: I'd love to talk about it because I live in that region, Yeah, exactly. but, but, before I do talk about it, I'll say that everything I'll be telling you about what works in the Yellowstone to Eco Yellowstone to Yukon Eco Region um, would apply to Africa and the world famous parks there. And mm-hmm. we've got look Yellowstone Glacier, Waterton, Banff, Jasper, this wonderful string of protected areas. If you were in East Africa, it would be uh, Masai Mara and Tarangiri and Ruaha and anyway, you know, a whole series of wonderful parks. All of these are created on what's now a century and a half old model of go find some fabulous representative areas with special qualities of wildlife or scenery or both and set them aside and put a fence around them or, you know, draw draw a hard line around them. Mm-hmm. And then you save nature. And we can go visit it and see what, you know, what used to be. Um, and in between those parks, that was kind of de facto wild land or at least open space, uninhabited enough that animals could move from one preserve to another well that was several billion people ago
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know when i learned how to do conservation there were only about well there were less than half as many people on the planet and our our models are for they they're from earlier than that they're from when there were maybe 2 billion people on wow. the planet wow and and so what you said is very important i mean we the, we assume that animals would always be able to exchange genes and move to it, you know, adapt to changing conditions, changing climates to get to different seasonal ranges, droughts and floods, droughts, floods, whatever nature brings their way. And, and, um, and when that space in between fills up with people and farms and livestock and all the things we, we bring with us, um, then the animals are trapped. And that's most of the extinctions that have taken place in the last uh, several centuries, half, half a millennium since 1500 have been on oceanic islands. And that's simply because the animals have no option but mm-hmm. to deal with what comes. And most of them that arrive there don't make it over time. And that's what we're looking at. Our parks and preserves have become islands within a sea a rising sea of human development and so yellowstone to yukon was part of this idea of large landscape conservation and the yellowstone to yukon conservation initiative has 350 or 300 different um uh organizations that are part of this the membership um so it's a it's a joint effort, and it includes chambers of commerce and native tribes and businesses um as well as conservation groups and and land managers and that sort of thing so it's a let's just call it a human effort, recognizing that the likes of grizzly bears and and moose and wolves et cetera wolverines. They didn't arise in little isolated pockets of preserved land. They arose in big connected landscapes, and that's what's going to keep them surviving over time. And it doesn't mean removing people or changing everyone's ha- uh, habits drastically. It just means considering the needs of those animals to move and connect. And we're smart enough to come up with plans for that. And Yellowstone to Yukon has and. I don't mean to praise it to the skies. It's been a slog. There's been a lot of resistance, but they've increased the connectivity from, uh, about 5% of this 2000 mile long stretch of the, of the crown, the backbone of the world. We call it around mm-hmm. here, the con- crown of the continent, um, from less than 5% to more than 30% and since 1992. Mm-hmm. So, um, and they've created with, common consent new management areas new wildlife friendly uh landscapes that can be used by people but also um some some more protective reserves but much of it just involves slightly altering human activities putting some more boundaries around them and leaving room for all those critters which is what brings people to the area to come and Leave their money in towns like the one I live in. So,
0: And yeah, and part he of works. what you mentioned in the book, yeah, and part of what you were mentioning is they knew from the beginning when they were creating this initiative that it's going to take 100 years. So they're yep. not even a third of the way done when you look at it that way. That's right. That's um, right. So 5% is pretty incredible. And then even like um, things that I see a lot more commonplace now are the, um, the, the Animal Crossing overpaths.
1: Yep. Um yep. which I think is
0: really I don't know if that came from the the why to why, but it seems to be like people are being a lot more cognizant of it. And again, you can structure that argument to for people who are not as concerned about nature and say, Well, do you wanna hit anything with your car? Like Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. So there's other ways yeah. of, of trying to get people to who might not yeah. consider nature first and foremost to to be concerned about its welfare and its well being.
1: Sure. And and you know, it's interesting how that works. Um some areas they have been able to convince the Department of transportation to to um do highway crossings and it isn't always a big bridge; those are wonderful to see mm-hmm. uh the 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 pedestrian mm-hmm. i call it walkways for four legged pedestrians that you know just arch over a roadway yeah but but underpasses. You know, large culverts, that's everyone. You put a, you create those, you stick a a automatic video camera in there and you'd be amazed. Every animal in the ecosystem uses them. Yeah. From otters and bobcats and turtles to grizzly bears and cougars. So,
0: um. Yeah, they don't want to be on the roads.
1: No, (laughs) no. In fact, even when you build a, a overpass or underpass, it takes quite a bit of time before female grizzlies with new young or wolves um, are likely to use them they're very wary but before that those same female grizzlies would come up to the edge of a freeway and the males might try to get across a lot of them get whacked but the females will just turn back yeah so it becomes a, a hard barrier for them and now Give them a couple of years, they get used to it. They smell the other animals crossing it um, and their tracks and off they go. And now you've got a connected, um, in this mountain country, you've got to get the animals across these valleys, which is where your highways and railroads and settlements tend to be. So um, with good design and good land use planning, you can do it. And it doesn't have to be a big stretch of land. It just needs to be a safe one with decent habitat in it. Hmm. So anyway, and and again, I could be speaking of, of uh, what lions and elephants need in East Africa. I could be talking about what, what uh, chimpanzees need in another area or in Asia, what the wild, the wild dogs there called dole need. They're big, big country runners and and roamers like our wolves are, Hmm. but uh, they need to be able to get from place to place, so we can figure that out. That's not a that just not enough people know they need that. Right. They still think, "Well, we've saved nature. Let's all pat ourselves on the back." And um, nah, not there yet.
0: Right. Yeah, and I know that. Um, I know that just now, or at least to me, it seems like it's becoming a lot more of an important um, mission for a lot of nonprofits is to save. Not only those areas, but also the integration we've been talking about between people and um, and nature as well, but to to connect them, to make sure that they're yeah. not uh, as fractured. So, I mean, I've been hearing about it more often. I'm hoping success stories like the Y2Y will uh, popularize it even that much more. But I really, yeah. I mean, I, I thought it was, um, like you were saying, I thought it was a, a component component that a lot of other countries or a lot of other continents could utilize, given yeah. this all the success and, as well.
1: Well, it, it is a model and it's spurred others. Uh-huh. Uh, but I, these days with a better understanding of ecology and genetics and microbiology, all kinds of molecular biology, um, most scientists are thinking big and thinking connected I mean, that's saving nature is not what we used to think it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're not set, setting aside a little museum-like representations. We know those <laughs> won't hold up over time. Inbreeding alone will yeah. take uh, populations out in some areas. But uh, the other thing, I hope this doesn't sound too idealistic, but the conservation groups, um, there's a lot of them, and they've always been kind of competing for funds and not necessarily talking to each other and working together as much as they could be. Hmm. That's changing. That's changing for the better. It's partly desperation. Like guys, we don't have time. Right. Um, Government agencies that used to each just take care of their own turf um, and kind of ignore what was going on next door. Uh, They have interagency groups now. Hmm. The U.S. has transboundary talks all the time with Mexico and with Canada. We used to stop at the border. I'm old enough to remember those days, but where everyone and it was a grizzly bear here in this my part of the world that led us there because they were declared or listed as endangered in 1975. Yellowstone, the famous bear stronghold, was almost out of bears.
0: Yeah. Yep. And
1: and to preserve them they realized the forest service had to talk to the park service because the park yellowstone park, is surrounded by national forest and state forest lands and county lands and if mm-hmm. these guys and the bears don't care who owns it mm-hmm. if it's good habitat they're going to use
0: it yeah
1: and they couldn't and they all had different management prescriptions and they said we got to get together here and come up with a common plan and so now we've got to. million acre park, but we have a recognized 20 million acre greater Yellowstone ecosystem. and That's the focus of conservation. And now we're saying, well, but Yellowstone, even that greater ecosystem has to be connected to others Mm -hmm. for the big wild animals to roam and for nature to flow and genes to flow back and forth. So now it's part of the Yellowstone to eat yukon picture that's that's what this is it's just Mm -hmm. thinking bigger and again it's not people versus nature it's just integrating the two Mm. and i think we're showing we can do it if we can keep more people focused on that
0: yeah and that's such a good point about the almost genetic inbreeding that we could see Potentially, if these fractured communities were not commu- uh, connected. Sure. Um, and you kind of talk about that and, and you, you've addressed it a little bit about the uh, the island conservation initiative, which I thought was one of the other uh, like really positive pillars you had in the book. But yeah. it, to me, I mean, I'll let you talk about it, but it was just really fascinating about how, you know, again, you're, you're really underlying that thing that nature is connected and we're connected with nature. But you talk about... Um, like wharf rats and how they come, or boat—you uh, know—rats from boats. Yes. They come yeah. to the n- yeah. to the islands, and how so many things are impacted by that, um, from everything to like the size of the coral to the size of the of the fish, but also how, again, ending on a positive note, how easy it is to mitigate that one uh, element um, and potentially protect forty percent of our the world's endangered species.
1: Yeah, well, because of what we've been talking about inbreeding and not being able to adjust um, by moving to new areas, um, island species are very vulnerable. And, but they also, what happens inbreeding creates different strains of animals over time. And so there's a huge percentage of unique animals that are found only on certain islands. And they are, they comprise, yeah, 41% of the most critically endangered species on the planet. Hmm. And it's because, well, um, <laughs> like I say it's a tough situation to start with. And then humans um, over time have brought not just rats and house mice, but uh, knowingly or unknowingly um but they also have humans have colonized islands and and brought goats and cats and dogs and uh and name a domestic critter um um and so all that changes the vegetation all that competes with the predators um and so you end up with, yeah, a huge percentage of the most critically endangered animals are on oceanic islands. And it turns out instead of going and having to move heaven and earth uh, to save them which, and having huge political debates and economic debates like we do here on the mainland, you just go out and catch rats yeah. and remove them. And it was guys studying uh, blue whales, the biggest creatures ever on the planet and they roam the whole planet. You know, they migrate thousands and thousands of miles during, during a year. Um, a whole different kind of lifestyle. But as we were going out to look for blue whales and study them, we keep going by these islands. And the guys I was with said, you know, blue whales are doing better these days now that there's a ban on whaling, but the creatures you see on those islands, Mm -hmm are in tough shape and no one's paying attention and they founded a group called Island Conservation that said, well, we know what the problem is and it's taking out plants as well as animals, um, the rats and and the other non-native, the invasive species as we call them. If we simply remove those, um, look, there's been a 70 some percent decline in, seabirds in the last half century and that's because they nest on those islands that's where their rookeries are mm-hmm. that's because rats ate them up <laughs> and, yeah. uh, the eggs the adults everything and and uh, by simply going and doing this which is cheap is fast it's it's the opposite of the debates again we have over resources and conservation on the mainland um You take out the rats, and three years later, the air is full of wings. And, you know, it was huge colonies of seabirds and and mixed groups, and plants are coming back from seeds. We thought the plants were gone for good, but there were dormant seeds in the soil, and the vegetation is coming. It's it's a wonder to behold, and it's it's really – gosh, I I wish – I wish the rest of stuff, everything on the mainland was one-tenth that easy. Right. We'd be doing right, really yeah. well. But anyway, but if that's certainly something that works and something anybody can support and and save more species in a hurry than we ever thought we could.
0: Yeah. And one of the threads that you follow is, okay, well, these seabirds, um, you know, the, the rats and all these invasive species are eating the eggs – But when we bring those back or when we at least remove those invasive species, the eggs are there. The birds, hats, you know, there's there's more more of them. But because of that, their guano or at least, you know, bat guano, um, uh, uh, I guess, gives nutrients to coral reefs. And those coral reefs in turn are better. And then fish are bigger. I mean, so it doesn't just end with the land and air, but it also obviously impacts the water as well. And it's just so, so powerful to read.
1: Yeah. They're, they're certainly connected to the ocean. Yeah. And that, that mer, whole Marine w- realm. Um, yeah. If you take, if you diminish the wildlife community on the islands, you know, the reefs are going to pay a price for it. Yeah. And, and you bring it back all of a sudden they're getting some good responses in the richness and diversity of life in the ocean around restored islands. So it's kind of a twofer and, and, uh, I suggest that some of the same things will happen on land as we start connecting up areas. Yeah. The, the bounty of wildlife is going to surprise us. Its ability isn't, as I think some people see it all, as very vulnerable and precious. Well, it is, except, boy, these animals are, are tough and resistant, and you give them half a chance, they're going to do their part. And I think populations of a lot of creatures can bounce back with much less effort than we had imagined. Yeah. And much less sacrifice on humans' part, too. It's just we don't have to change that much.
0: Yeah. And, and what I really like about the Island Conservation Initiative is you can, you can see the proof right there. Like y- yep. You're able to quantify how many... Islands. And you said, well, there's a significant amount of these islands that do have these invasive species, but a lot of them (laughs) don't. And you brought it down to like 783 islands. Right. You can see that proof right there of the islands that you're, that, that the island conservation is working on and then those that, that aren't. And, you know, it's, I think that immediacy is really important for people. And I, I do think it does show people the elasticity of nature and how, if you're right, if you give it half a chance, if you just, or just oh, gosh, slightly yeah. mindful well, about it, it can well, it, repeal itself.
1: It, 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 It's priorities, and priorities, it depends on what people know. I don't think most people have thought about it. Um, and for the price of, uh, you know, constructing another freeway somewhere or building, you know, more weapons, you, usual arguments, um, yeah. you know, but you could restore all seven you know the wildlife of all 783 islands and you could do it within where you and I, you know next time i see you we can say hey wasn't that great your mm-hmm. work right, right. <laughs> it's all good now and um I uh, we can't say the same on land but it's it's um it's the same model in some ways and the connectivity is is the key though here on the uh, on the mainlands, and I think people are moving that direction. I think with climate change, everybody's got a little different and deeper understanding now that, you know, s- conditions can change to where you need to consider going somewhere else.
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I live right on the coast, like I insane, saying, and we we can see <laughs> that firsthand. Uh, it's a little scary. Yeah. But, um. Well, what I love – I keep saying that, but what I really love about the book is that you're very, you know, you you make sure not to blame people. Uh, You're very understanding that people have done what they need to do. Um, You know, that's not necessarily always the case where some people, you know, do ravage, um, uh, you know, natural spaces. But you seem very positive and hopeful about things. Like you have this mantra throughout the book, there's always a chance. There's always a chance that this could happen. Um,
1: well, yeah, and, and and more than a chance. I, I think um, we've spent so much time – oh, gosh, it's just what we do. Um, you demonize the guys that don't agree with you. I shouldn't even say guys, the people that don't agree yeah. with you. Um, and look for fault in them, and, and instead of, you know, arguing – Solutions, you end up having a, a "I'm right, who's, you're wrong" argument. And it goes on and on, and and if if people say, look, I'm made of the same stuff that the guy who has a whole different ideology yep has, and I need the same things, and so do our children and grandchildren, and I I think. If we can get past, you know, our specialness and look at all, all the connections we have, but also get past the idea of, um, you know, it's we're sacrificing something. The the idea is whatever benefits me is going to benefit someone else. Nature conservation. Look, nature's embedded in all of us. We are embedded in nature. Um, I'm talking to you and blinking my eyes and my heart is beating because of little uh, modified microbes called mitochondria that power every living cell on every living plant and animal and single-celled animal. Um, These are the little battery packs that are in every cell. I'm, I'm a, you know, it doesn't mean you and I have to stop saying I and I have to start saying we,
0: right, right,
1: <laughs> us, right. me, my microbiome, and my mitochondria. No, um, but you know we're we're in it together, and I I, and I think if we can get past that and get past the idea of seeing nature conservation as kind of more like a hobby or a uh, what us. A nice thing to do if we have the time and money. It's sort of a luxury. Right. Um, and it's, oh, that's all fine if you had a, you know, zillion. it's like, no, o- over time it's an economic, I mean, it's why corporations, I think, are, are you know, that are, are counting their quarterly earnings are starting to turn towards saying we have to do something about climate change. We have to do something about you know, the fish, the people dependent on marine resources know that the amount of plastics in the ocean is going to outweigh the fish by 2050. Yeah. That's bad for business. You know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, temperatures too hot to work in are bad for business. And and uh, so anyway, I think we got to if we can start bridging that and saying I, we're. Protecting nature is protecting ourselves. is It's one and the same thing. And destroying nature, or diminishing it, is hurting ourselves. And this is not a a moral, ethical, ideological, philosophical argument. It's what happens. Survival. It's it's science, and um, it's how ecosystems work. And ecosystems work on their connection. So we got the challenge of connecting wildlands. Connecting agencies and groups that are uh, managing those lands and then connecting with other people, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, and and getting past the, uh, the environmental sermons and getting past the you're guilty of this and that and I'm gonna make you feel so bad. Right. <laughs> and I'm gonna here's you know, I, I I'm and I've been guilty of that. I'm the I'm the ecologist to go to a, a party and it's like you know, I'm wandering around talking to people going, and here's another really horrible fact right, about the right. environment you might not know. And then <laughs> Wonder why I don't ever get invited back?
0: Yeah, people yeah. love that when Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've been guilty of that too.
1: Yeah. Oh, it's that guy. Here he comes. Yeah, run, for, run for the right. exit.
0: Well, so, like, do you see that as a trend? Do you see that as people are awaking to conservation? Whether it's you know, you even mentioned organizations and corporations. Do you see that widening of empathy? As I read, you put it in the book.
1: Ah. Uh, yeah i do and and I'm really glad you mentioned that right? because the another way we think of ourselves is is you know in in this context of being very special and uh unique creations and and I read a lot of science literature and one of the most common phrases is Um, in studies today is a trait formerly thought to be unique to humans. And what I love about being a naturalist is the more you look, the more you discover. There's no end to it and no end to the wonder, but also the discovery. And the harder we look at animals, the more we see the emotional range and the intelligence is way beyond what we assumed it to be Mm -hmm. we just decided they couldn't do these things you know (laughs) animals can't think why because it you know it threatens our 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 specialness our Mm. our uh idea that we are unique and and um we're not and i think yes that's changing that's what you're getting at is i think the especially again i don't know if there's a certain um age beyond which people get just stick with their fixed ideas but i i certainly think the younger folks are are uh, why wouldn't you know the, it's an extension of of um empathy from us and it, it can't be criticized anymore as well you're just uh looking at animals like what humans in furry suits or you're you're making stuff up you're right. Yeah, it, it's kind of like if people, you know, come up and say, well, I talk to my dog and it understands everything I say. And I say, no, it doesn't. But it understands way more than most people give it credit for. Yeah. And by the yeah. way, it shares 85% of the same genes that we have. So why wouldn't it? Right. It's a good point. How, how, could, how could it be that different? Now, dogs, yes. We can science finally come out and say, yes, dogs feel joy. Dogs feel loneliness. Dogs feel pain dogs get up really i mean you know there's a pretty big industry in in uh people taking their dogs to the equivalent of doggy shrinks yep but but, i mean here in montana's horse people um but obviously they're they're emotionally um uh creative what uh, complex animals that we just are God, how can we live with them for so long and only now start to consider these things? But, um, it's changing. And, and so again, I'm not trying to be Pollyanna here. I just do see a lot of positive trends. And I think a lot of it is social media. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, who hasn't, you know, sure everyone's watching cat videos on, on right. the internet, right. but they're right. also on their phones, but they're also watching, you know, an octopus or they're watching, uh, a, uh, a, you know, some some lion that's adopted a, uh, a g- baby gazelle for some reason mm-hmm. instead of eating it. And I, I, I'm not saying lions are suddenly turning kind-hearted. I right. just, it's just, they do complex things. Yeah. They do really fascinating things. No one's trying to interpret it or make judgments. It's just, who knew? And there's a lot more. There's video cameras all over the world now stuck on trees or on posts and out in the woods. And we're seeing into the lives of other animals in new ways. And the researchers are doing it in the laboratory. Um, and all the indications are that, wow, we, we're we we're opening up our... We're getting back maybe to where humanity was in the day when, you know, here in Montana, the Blackfeet and the Salish Kootenai tribes talked about, you know, the bear people and the fish people and the bird people. Sure. Yeah. Um, they're... And people, by the way, do study orcas as though they were tribes. They, they compare mm. them to cultural difference among tribes in New Guinea, say in the highlands. That's how different mm. killer whale groups are, clans, and, and I guess I'd call them just killer whale cultures. And by the way, a uh, male killer whale has a brain about four times the size of. Right yours yeah <laughs> and nothing- nothing personal, mine too <laughs> so um, different, and um I say enjoy it, and enjoy the fact that we're sharing genes with them too, and that's part of that, our greater selves our more than human future, if we look at things maybe more clearly,,
0: hmm. yeah, I love the way you put that, the way you think positively um. It sounds like you're hopeful. I mean, I, I normally ask at the end of podcasts, like, are you hopeful? Because um, I talk to a lot of people who are, and I talk to a lot of people who aren't, depending on the subject. Yeah. I think I know where you stand with it, but I also would like to hear well, you say it directly, too.
1: Okay, I will say, uh, yes, I'm just a quick yes, I am hopeful, right. but I'm, I also say I'm a willful optimist. Um, I don't function very well when I'm you know i'm depressed and i
0: couldn't agree more i
1: i have i have my bad days i spend a lot of time in parts of, of the world where i look around and i just say man take me back to montana and put me outdoors on a good trail because i i'm 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 about to throw up my hands on on the wow. possibilities here um but the, then you're ta- you're talking about stuff that's way beyond my pay grade is is corrupt governments and and, you know, economic and, and political inequities and stuff I don't know how to solve. Right. I just, I just, but I guess we all have days like that. I'm trying to be realistic. I don't, and, but I, I do, I've been lucky in my career, um, working with National Geographic and other, uh, you know, groups, um, to see a lot of what does work and a lot of thought that's leading us in a different direction and being put into action. And I'm not sure how that balances with these huge trends of, of human population growth and technological change and the loss and fragmentation of habitats. But I think there's a clearer idea of how to fix it. And I think there's a, Micro, uh, molecular biology and genetics have shown us a different view of humans of what we are and we're not you know we're not what we thought we were we're not made of the way we thought we were and we're not as different or as special but that's a positive thing and i, I think i think that if that can spread a bit and not you know I can write my little books and try to get that out in my sphere, but it's being done by science it's being done by a lot of other um you know knowledgeable people and those ideas just take time to get through people's um assumptions and delusions and uh preferences for what they want to think about yeah but i i that's a complicated way of saying. Uh, yes, I am optimistic, but I um, it takes some effort. Some days. <laughs> yes. Is that and I'm sure it's the same for you.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, I, I I can totally get it, and especially like even when just reading the population sections in the book, like it is scary to know how quickly that's happened, or um, to not really see some of the changes, like where. That you're talking about, like where I live, I'm in the southeast, and it's not as big of an emphasis on conservation. No, um, it's a little bit of an antagonistic relationship in some places. Yep, but I'm hoping that's changing.
1: Well, okay, let's just. <laughs> I don't know if other animals hope they'd certainly have complex emotions, but we we have that, and that's I think enough of a motive to. Everyone out there can be part of uh, uh, an effort to find something else that works, find something new that works. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I get, if I get discouraged about stuff, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make me get less busy. And it, it just motivates me to get out there and say, this is uh, maybe I'm delusional too, but it, it seems so obvious to me. Mm-hmm. And besides that, I, I refuse to live in a world without elephants and without grizzly bears yep. and without orcas um, I just can't even contemplate it and I'm going to just stay as busy as I can trying to <laughs> you know I owe them I've had moments in my life uh, with them that have are worth everything to me and I, what can I give back what can I do I'm part of it and they're part of me so <laughs> um, I guess that that puts me on the over on the optimistic side of, of things. I, but I don't really have a choice. I love it. I I feel.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think we think about things very similarly in terms of having to maintain that optimism. Otherwise I don't want to know what the what if is. I don't know what the what if would be (laughs) with me or with uh, the earth or with a lot of other people who are really taking conservation to heart. Um, I feel like when people think that it's, it's game over, that they're going to just behave as such and they're yeah. not going to worry about it. If there's no hope, then what's the point of doing any of this? So,
1: Well, look, I've gone back. I'm, I'm just Joe Schmo out in Montana, but I've been able to give testimony at congressional subcommittees just as a citizen and call my senators off the floor of Congress and talk to them. Um, I also was with some, some other folks, helped put together a group called Vital Ground, which is a conservation land trust. And we do conservation easements with private landowners for wildlife habitat They protect it. They can keep ranching, farming, doing whatever they're doing, but do it in a way that keeps the land open and useful to wildlife at right. least part of the year. And I've been at that 30 years and We've now protected with partners, a lot of different partners, connectivity, um, seven hundred thousand some acres. Wow! The group is called Vital Ground, and so I—I I mean, I've—I've I've seen things work, and and I know they can, and so I. Um, instead, of, the minute I feel myself getting discouraged, it's like, okay, come on, Chadwick, think. <laughs> Get busy, uh, you're, that means you're not doing it well enough. Right. You're not doing it right or not doing enough of it. So and I just, I'm not driven. I, I get to go out and uh, sit in the sun, put my feet up and have a good time. <laughs> I, I was out picking plums off my trees before I came in and started talking to you. <laughs> and,
0: <laughs> well, I, thank you so much for your time. I feel like it's you know your time is incredibly valuable. And, yeah, I really appreciate both – speaking with you but also again the piece that I got from reading Fists a Grizzly. I can't tell you how um like fulfilled I felt or just even motivated I felt to to help change. And also again when we were I was reading the sections about nature's influence on us. I mean I knew that but even reading that gave me gave me calm. Um oh, yeah. very,
1: <laughs> that's wonderful to hear and thank you. Uh, I I that's awful good to know. I guess somebody somebody might somebody might buy my book besides my wife and um, <laughs> my my neighbors. Uh, actually, she doesn't have to buy it. But, but I, anyway, um, no. But that's that's really that's really good to hear. And and that's the point. And if I can be a bridge, a connector, part of the connectivity <laughs> between science and and readers, that's that's a fulfilling thing for me to do. And I, that's as good as going out and maybe doing something as practical the next day to save an acre here or an animal over there. So, um, that's what I try to do. So thank you for your comments. And thank you for the time to speak with you. It's been great.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I will say as a side note, like the photos in the book are incredible. Um, I bet you've gotten that feedback uh, before, but like the book reads very calming and relaxing, but the photos do a very, very good job of um, of connecting the, the visuals to what you're what yeah. you're talking about. All credit
1: to Patagonia yeah. and to a wonderful photo editor named Jane Sievert and a great designer named Christina Speed. I mean, they're just, this was a team, man. This yeah. was fun. Yeah. And it's like, let's not put in pictures of beautiful nature and stuff people have seen before. The ideas are about things that are going to be new to a lot of people. And let's make the pictures that way. And man, they just jump out. They, Patagonia did a great job. Yeah. I got to give them credit.
0: And there's an so, example of an organization of a company that is doing incredible things. Uh, they watch the,
1: they walk the talk. Yes, they're, they're for good, sure. Good, good people to work with. So, well,
0: great. Yeah, well, awesome. Well, thank you so much again for your time. Um, and again, thank you, thank you for uh, allowing me to give me the chance to read and review the book. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you, Brian.
0: Thanks for joining. If you like that episode, feel free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog. Don't forget yourboots.com where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. Until next time. Take care.